you want to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, I know we have some visitors and new faces here today. One of the things that we do probably 90% of the time here is we preach through an entire book of the Bible, meaning we preach through a passage. Last week we finished up Galatians chapter 1, and then we just continue on to the next passage week after week. And part of the reason why we do that, there's several reasons, but part of the reason why we do that is because if you just pick a passage that you want to preach, you tend to pick things that interest you. If you preach, it's called expository preaching, passage by passage through a book of the Bible, that forces you to touch on subjects that, if left to your own devices, you wouldn't necessarily have selected. But in that, you can see some real gems of passages, and certainly that's the case today, where we see a passage on a subject that's something that we probably wouldn't think of as being especially relevant to us today, but the more you dig into the section and what Paul's really talking about, you see how pertinent it really is for our situation. So Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, as it will be this morning, I'll read the passage. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those I say, who seemed influential, added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for your amazing grace in our lives. Lord, we praise you for your goodness, for the blessings that come from you. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be together again today to worship your great name, to study your word. May it be something that is edifying to us, Lord, that is pleasing to you, that is pointing us to your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. A few moments ago, Steve mentioned the uh, women's Christmas brunch. The holiday season is rapidly approaching. And one of the reasons why it's a time of year that's so beloved is that it's a time that's rich in traditions. Think for just a moment about a favorite holiday tradition in your family. And the older you are, maybe the further back you can go on 
certain traditions that have been part of your Thanksgiving or part of your Christmas for many years. But imagine if everyone in your family just stopped doing that tradition. Maybe some of you have experienced that. But we hate that. If I invited you to my house for Thanksgiving dinner that, this year, and instead of serving turkey, we were having barbecue chicken, and instead of pumpkin pie, we were having ice cream sandwiches, and instead of watching football or It's a Wonderful Life, we watched a marathon of my favorite World War II movies. It just wouldn't feel like Thanksgiving. And it's not just limited to holidays. Traditions in school, prom and graduation, getting a yearbook or a letter jacket, rites of passage like learning how to drive, traditions in sports. A baseball game just doesn't feel like a baseball game without the ceremonial first pitch and the seventh inning stretch. And the NFL traditions, the Steelers have their terrible towels, the Lions and the Cowboys have their Thanksgiving Day games. The Packers have the Lambeau Leap. The Bears have getting a new quarterback every year. <laughs> I think of 2020. There were obviously many things about that year that were difficult. But one of the many unfortunate things was traditions being interrupted, coming to an end, or needing to be changed. The buzz phrase that year was the new normal. But when you care about traditions, you don't want a new normal. You want the traditional tradition because traditions matter. And they might matter more to some of us than others, but in various ways, they matter to all of us. Traditions connect us with people. They can have positive associations with fond memories. They connect us with past generations. For the Jewish people, both today and in the past, a tradition that they view as sacred is circumcision. It had been given by God to Abraham as a sign of the covenant. It became a requirement of being part of the Israelite community. It was theologically and culturally important. In the couple centuries before Jesus walked the earth, both the Israelites and their enemies had make, made circumcision into a political issue and a sign of oppression. When the Greeks conquered Jerusalem, they forbade the practice and made circumcision punishable by death, both for the mother who allowed circumcision and for the child who received it. Fast forward a couple generations, the Jewish people had more power in the Holy Land. Their kings attempted to force circumcision on all the males living within Israel. Some Jewish theologians believed that the arrival of the Messiah was linked to the purification of Israel and to all the men being circumcised in the land. This wasn't an insignificant issue. There was history behind it. It's not so easy to let go of something where there are generations of history and practice and which have become part of a cultural identity. In Jewish circles, the importance of the practice wasn't even debated. It's interesting to consider the ministry of Jesus. Circumcision rarely comes up in the four Gospels, although Luke's Gospel does mention that the infant Jesus was circumcised, as would have been expected because he was Jewish. People have all sorts of reactions to Jesus during his ministry. People who 
disliked things Jesus did, things he said, people with whom he associated. There were controversies involving Jesus' activities on the Sabbath and statements he made about the temple. But there wasn't a circumcision controversy. However, in the early church, with the earliest Christians who had been Jewish, and with people still trying to figure out the relationship of the gospel to Judaism, of the new covenant to the old covenant, of grace to the law, there were those who thought that the practice of circumcision would obviously carry over into the church. Paul addresses these controversies in numerous writings, besides Galatians. He talks about the matter in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, in Philippians, and Colossians. In that debate, there were those who argued that circumcision was necessary for being part of the Christian community. For that side, they accepted Jesus, but still thought that there were aspects of the Old Testament law which Christians needed to follow. And you had those who did not think that circumcision was required for being a Christian. The debate was essentially settled in the first century and is not especially controversial within the church today. But this passage is still relevant because it's a passage which deals with a subject far more profound. It's a passage which gets to the heart of the gospel itself. And those who seek to dilute the truth of the gospel by adding requirements onto the gospel. The main idea of our passage today is that a gospel with law is no gospel at all. And we'll be looking at our passage today in three sections. A circumcision controversy, a gospel under attack, and an agreement among the apostles. With that, we'll jump right into our passage. First section, a circumcision controversy. Now, for a little bit of background context on this situation, it's important to remember that Paul had previously traveled to these churches in Galatia and shared the gospel. After that, those churches had been infiltrated by those who had sought to add requirements onto the gospel and who had led many Christians astray and caused confusion in the church. And so in writing to the Galatians, Paul is talking about how this controversy was previously dealt with in Jerusalem. Last week, we finished up Galatians chapter 1. At the end of chapter 1, Paul has been talking about his conversion to Christianity, and he'd also given a broad overview of some of his early happenings when he came to faith. He had been saved through a revelation of Jesus and called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, non-Jewish people. He talks about his early travels. He had gone to Arabia and Damascus. He had gone to Jerusalem, Syria, and Cilicia. Chapter 2, he hits the ground running. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So you have Paul writing to the Galatians and talking about this controversy in Jerusalem because the Galatian churches are facing the same issue where people were attempting to add requirements to the gospel. In the passage, Paul mentions that Titus and Barnabas had accompanied him. They'll both be mentioned again later in this passage. Titus, in particular, is very important because he was somewhat of a test case in this whole debate. When the U.S. Supreme Court 
has a big decision that gets made. Oftentimes in the media, they'll talk about landmark cases. In other words, significant cases which help set precedent. Titus was Paul's landmark, his landmark case against circumcision. He was a non-circumcised, non-Jewish convert to Christianity. Verse 2, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So what Paul is saying is that he met with the apostles and told them the gospel he had been sharing with people who were not Jewish. Paul didn't meet with all of the apostles, but this passage will later mention that he met with apostles who were primary leaders in the church, Peter and James and John. Now, throughout chapter 1, over the last few weeks, Paul has talked about his apostolic authority. Now, in chapter 2, he's not presenting his gospel to the rest of the apostles for their approval. Paul's not shy about the fact that he is their apostolic equal. But it's still worth being in agreement. That's a good thing. And when you have Paul preaching a gospel of grace, and you have other people trying to add law to the gospel, Paul was working to show that the apostles were in agreement. Verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Greek is synonymous with Gentile here. He's Greek, which is emphasizing the fact that Titus was not Jewish. After Paul had met with the apostles, even though Titus was with him, they did not compel him to get circumcised. And so the reason why Titus matters is that if he had come to faith in the gospel, and if he could believe in the gospel and know salvation through Christ without circumcision, then so could anyone else. And that is the gospel. What makes us acceptable by God is what Christ has done. We come to our second point, the gospel under attack. So we see this preliminary agreement between Paul and the other prominent apostles in Jerusalem. And Paul will return to the overarching discussion again at the end of the passage. But he interrupts that to talk about those who had sought to impose circumcision. Verse 4. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. Paul does not mince words. His language is heavy. He calls them false brothers. In other words, he's saying that they're not really part of the brotherhood of the church. And the reason why is because they're preaching a false gospel. That language, that thinking, does not sit well in our postmodern, live and let live, speak your truth, all roads lead to God, coexist, bumper sticker culture. But this isn't some small disagreement. They're disagreeing over the fundamentals of what it means to be made right with God. And to reduce salvation to our own merit is to rob Christ of his glory and the cross of its meaning. 
Paul talks about them spying out the freedom which is in Christ in bringing people into slavery. It was a threat from within the church. Attaching law to the gospel enslaves. I'll have more on that in a few moments. Verse 5, Paul says that they did not back down on the issue. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul is a man of conviction. It matters that Paul didn't yield to false teaching because then he himself would have been preaching a false gospel. Paul isn't concerned for his sake. Rather, it's for the sake of others. It's for the church. It's for us. The apostles who had seen the risen Jesus wrote down what they saw and went to their deaths for that truth. And so Paul did not back down because he sought to preserve the gospel for future generations. Because that is our tradition. And that is the tradition, the gospel the truth of the message that we have a Savior who died and rose, that we were dead in sin, but Jesus brings eternal life, that we were condemned in our sins, but Jesus gives mercy. Paul would not compromise on that. There is no negotiating with a false gospel. For those who sought to impose circumcision, that view had gained traction in the early church. In Acts chapter 15, you have the Jerusalem Council, which convened to address the question of what was required for Gentiles to join the church. There's debate about when Galatians was written. Because Paul doesn't mention the council, I actually take that to mean that Paul wrote Galatians prior to the Acts 15 council. But in that passage, Acts chapter 15, verse 1, we see people coming who had attempted to make it a gospel issue. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. There could be no agreement with this side. One of my favorite movies that's come out in recent years is the film Darkest Hour. It's about Winston Churchill and when he became Prime Minister of England in 1940. Those were tough times. On the same day Churchill became prime minister, Germany invaded France. And at the time, there was a lot of pressure on Churchill to come to the table, to negotiate with Germany. In one of the most dramatic scenes of the movie, Churchill's character is sitting at the table with some of his advisors and generals. They're trying to convince him that a war is unwinnable and that they have to negotiate. They have to make concessions. In the movie Churchill, portrayed by Gary Oldman, sort of slams his hands on the table. He says, you cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. And you cannot compromise on the gospel with people who care more about tradition than the cross. Because a gospel with, no, with law is no gospel at all. We come to our third point, the fellowship of the apostles. Paul returns to his discussion from verse 2 about how he had met with some of the other leaders, some of the other apostles. Verse 6, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Paul is once again almost downplaying the apostles, those who seemed influential. 
Now, he'll later refer to them as pillars of faith, so he does respect them, but he also doesn't worship or venerate them. Paul says that they added nothing to me. His point is that they added nothing to the gospel that he preached. There was apostolic authority in recognizing the truth of the gospel of grace. People who had seen the risen Jesus and who had been entrusted by Jesus to lead his church were in agreement on the gospel. Verses 7 and 8. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Paul's focus is on mission, what he had been called to do. Paul says something similar in chapter 1. He was called to preach the gospel to the uncircumcised. In other words, he was called to preach the gospel primarily to those who were not ethnic Jews. And the other apostles recognized that, that that was Paul's call. Peter was the opposite. He primarily preached to Jewish people. Both ministries mattered because both groups are part of the mission of God whom the Lord has intended to reach with the good news of the gospel. But what matters is that they're preaching the same message. There isn't a Jewish gospel and a Gentile gospel. Verses 9 and 10. And when James and Cephas, that's a nickname for Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul is once again emphasizing the fellowship he had with the other apostles. They both affirmed his gospel and ministry. Paul had ultimately wanted to go to serve people and ended up getting caught up in this controversy. But theology matters. I've said this before, but bad theology is often close enough to good theology to seem right. For those who were trying to force circumcision, they weren't overtly rejecting Jesus. They were just saying Jesus and. Jesus and circumcision. And really not just that, but it became Jesus and circumcision and the law of the Old Testament. I borrow an idea from Tim Keller. You have all of these laws in the Old Testament. Some of them are things which seem antiquated to us today. Dietary laws, cleanliness laws. But they all had principles behind them which were valid. For instance, you have all of these sacrificial laws in the Old Testament. They're foreign to our culture and how we think, but they aren't arbitrary. The point that those laws point to is our need for atonement, that we're sinful and that something outside of ourselves is needed for our redemption. Even if you had followed all of the laws of the Old Testament, sacrifice was still required. And that points to Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. Do we still need sacrifices today? No. Why? Why? When they were good in the Old Covenant, are they not needed now? Why? Because it's fulfilled in Christ. 
the atonement that we could not earn was achieved by Jesus. And so when we take what Christ has done, what he has fulfilled, what he has accomplished, and we feel that we still need to impose requirements over top of that for our acceptability before God, it's saying that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. It's saying that his death on the cross for your sins wasn't truly sufficient. And in that, you lose the gospel. Because a gospel with law is no gospel at all. And that is what Paul is saying when he talks about bringing slavery. It is imposing requirements which will not save you and practices which will not bring you closer to Christ. The dietary laws are fulfilled in Christ. The sacrifices are fulfilled in Christ. And circumcision is fulfilled in Christ. How is that the case? To answer that question, we must remember, as I said in the beginning, that the Lord instituted circumcision with Abraham. Michael Heiser is helpful on this point. Abraham and his wife were very old. She was well beyond childbearing age, and they had never had an heir. But the Lord had made a covenant with Abraham where he promised to bring blessing to the world through the offspring of Abraham. But they had no child. And so the only way this could happen would be through a miracle because they had never had a child. But the Lord promises Sarah that she would have a child, Isaac. In Genesis chapter 17, as a sign of the covenant, God commanded Abraham and all the men in his household to be circumcised. Heiser argues that the key to understanding the purpose of circumcision as a covenant sign is directly tied to the birth of Isaac. For everyone in the household of Abraham, they knew that circumcision was somehow connected to God's promise. Yeah, it might have seemed crazy, but after that, Sarah became pregnant. As circumcision has unmistakable symbolisms with procreation, it was a reminder that Israel's entire existence as God's people came about through a miraculous intervention of God. As Israel's continued existence could only come through the providence of God, circumcision was a continual sign to Israel of the Lord who had made them and sustained them. But the promised offspring of Abraham would also point forward to the ultimate son, Christ the Lord, who himself came from the line of Abraham, and he would be the one who would bring the ultimate blessing to the nations. We see in Jesus the fulfillment of the practice. Should Christians still practice it today? Should Christians still do circumcision to remember that we too exist by virtue of the providence of God? It's allowable, but not required. Instead, Jesus has given the church baptism and communion as signs of a new covenant which point to the gospel. But those still don't save you. In communion, the cup and the bread point to Christ's body and blood. In baptism, it's symbolic of his death and resurrection and dying and being raised with Jesus. But there's no call to continue the practice of circumcision. That's not the only reason why it's no longer required. There's further parallels to sacrifice, but I won't get into all of that this morning. The issue actually comes up a few more times in the book of Galatians. But I want to close by talking about this final verse. Paul says, They asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. 
In some ways, that seems almost unrelated to the rest of the passage. Everything Paul has been talking about is about this circumcision controversy and how the apostles responded. Then in the end, he talks about how he was eager to remember the poor. Theology matters. It's important to love and serve people. But if you are not on guard for the gospel, you will get off course. Paul needed to get to the truth of the gospel, and he needed to get that right first. Because without that, you're not ultimately sharing the message which brings salvation. You might meet a temporary need, but if you're doing it while preaching or accepting false gospels, you're meeting a temporary need while overlooking the eternal need for salvation, which is found in Christ alone. Because getting the gospel wrong will lead you off course. One degree off on a compass might not seem like very much distance, but if you're traveling the whole world, you'll be hundreds of miles off course. Theology matters. When we act like it doesn't, people and churches develop all sorts of ideas that are based on preferences and feelings and opinions, but which aren't rooted in the truth of God. I know how off the rails so many churches have become. And I think of how much of this is due to churches who compromised on the gospel, mitigating the saving work of Jesus and reducing him to a moral teacher, undermining the reality of sin and wanting to focus more on being a self-help preaching church. I've mentioned numerous times that this entire passage might seem antiquated or irrelevant. To some it might seem silly or archaic, but it isn't. It's a landmark case in the early church that helped to sharpen exactly what the gospel of grace really was. We are sinful people, and Jesus freely offers grace because he is the righteous savior of the world who died and rose. And when we believe in him, we are justified before God based on what Christ has done. And you have churches who attack that message on every front. You have churches who undermine the justifying work of Christ and instead preach a moralistic gospel that salvation ultimately is about following a list of rules that is exactly what the gospel is not. That if you do this, if you follow these rules, if you do these things, then God will love you. Jesus died to show us that that was not the gospel. The New Testament over and over again points to how our own works, our own goodness cannot save us. If it could, we wouldn't have needed Jesus. We are justified by faith. We have churches who preach a false gospel, which removes the necessity of faith in Jesus. So many churches do this. It doesn't really matter if you believe in Jesus or not, because he's forgiving. You need to believe in him. That is what the Bible says. That is what the New Testament calls us to. Now, if somebody's not a Christian, sure, they won't believe that. But for churches who hold up the Bible as the Word of God, who then take the teachings and make it whatever they want it to be, theology matters, and the gospel is worth defending. Because otherwise, we get off track. Paul had wanted to serve people and got caught up in a theological controversy. Because to not deal with that issue first would have been the greatest failure to serve people with the thing that mattered most. 
And that should be a reminder to this church and all churches who care about the Word of God and about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That that is the main thing and the thing that matters above all else, being true to the gospel message. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. It is so often so hard to accept our need for grace. But when we do, there is forgiveness and mercy. We have a Savior who lived a perfect life, who died and rose. Lord, may we be people who live lives that are transformed by that truth. Lord, may we not perform and act certain ways because we think that that's what will make you love us. May we live as people who know the love you have for us, and as a result of that, shine as light in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.